You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Welcome to the show. Our guest on the program is author Bruce G. Hallenbeck. Bruce Hallenbeck has uh, written numerous books. Film fans, fantasy film fans know his work uh, on Hammer films, uh, the horror films that Hammer produced, American International Pictures. Uh, he's been a contributor to um, Little Shop of Horrors magazine, which is a wonderful publication about Hammer films. And uh, we'll be talking about his new book, Poe Pictures, The Film Legacy of Edgar Allan Poe. It's published by Tomahawk Press. You can find and order the book online on Amazon, Poe Pictures, or you can go right to the publisher's website, tomahawkpress.com, and order a copy. The title is taken from a quote uh, from Stephen King. Stephen King wrote a wonderful uh, memoir-slash-writer's manual back in 2000 called On Writing. And uh, here's the quote. We liked just any horror movie, but our faves were the string of American international films, mostly directed by Roger Corman. We had our own name for these films, one that made them into a separate genre. There were westerns, there were love stories, and there were Poe pictures. Full disclosure, here now is the time for a disclaimer that uh, an interview with me and uh, an extensive section on my film, The Death of Poe, which I believe came out in 2006, uh, is included in the book. And um, I think the word that I'm stuck on is that I am gobsmacked about the very nice things that Bruce Hellenbeck say, uh, wrote about The Death of Poe in his book. Um, truly wonderful to be acknowledged in this way. So I wanted to get it out of the way right away that um, that uh, my film is featured very prominently toward the very end of the book as he gets into the 21st century. So we'll talk about that, um, and we'll talk about Poe Pictures uh, in general, um, starting from the first films that are biographical in nature to the first adaptations, and we'll just sort of see where the conversation leads us. Bruce G. Hellenbeck. The book is called Poe Pictures. Uh, just curious, um, what is your favorite Corman? Edgar Allan Poe movie adaptation? You know, it's always a tough question, but I, I would have to go with Mask of the Red Death. I think it's just a, a magnificent movie. Um, it has a few flaws here and there, but I'd, I'd call it a flawed masterpiece. I I absolutely love that film. And um, the I, I, I think your experience with getting into Poe films and Poe adaptations is similar to mine, similar to so many horror fans. And it, and it begins with the Corman Poe movies. Um, but that was, what was your first uh, Corman Poe film that you saw that you remember? Uh, the first one I saw uh, when it came out was uh, 
the Haunted Palace, which of course is really a Lovecraft film, but uh, right. But it feels like a Poe film in a lot of ways. They had their mechanism. Yeah, they had their team in place. Uh, they were rolling. Uh, they were American International was very very successful at that point with their Poe films. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite. I tend to snap back sometimes to House of Usher. Um, and I, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure why, you know, these things are always sort of subjective. Um, I love mask of the red death as well. It's kind of fun that they graphed the story of hop frog into it. What was mm-hmm. the impetus? Your, your career, you've written so many books that, um, fans know, uh, particularly fans of hammer horror films. And you did do a book about American international pictures. Um, was it just, was it something that was always on your plate and coming down the pike to do uh, a, a book like Poe Pictures? Uh, what was the impetus? How'd you come to that? Actually, surprisingly enough, um, almost all of my books have been commissioned by the publishers. And uh, Poe Pictures came about in, a, in an odd sort of way. Um, I received a phone call uh, at the New York State Library, where I worked at the time, uh, from uh, Bruce Sachs, who was a publisher uh, in England. He owns uh, Tomahawk Press, and um, I didn't know the guy at all. And uh, apparently, he had been recommended to me by Tony Earnshaw, who's a British author. Um, (laughs) He said... You know, we're trying to get this book, uh, Poe Pictures, out. He said, we've, we've tried a couple of different writers, and they haven't been able to handle it. And uh, hmm. he said, we were having a conversation the other day in my office, and your name came up. And I'm thinking, wow, my name came up in England. That's kind of cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, he asked me if I'd be interested in, in taking over the project uh, from another writer. And I said, uh, sounds interesting to me. Because I, you know, I love Poe and I love Poe movies, so um, that's and that's how that happened. Um, it certainly was not anything I planned, but I'm really glad I did it. I think it's maybe the best book I've done. Um, it, I, it certainly required the most research of any book I've done. Yeah, I mean, the there there isn't that much out there if. If you're a fan of Poe films, I think you're going to, what's going to come to mind immediately is the Roger Corman, Vincent Price cycle of Poe films as okay. fans know them. And if you are of re- recent vintage, if you're a young moviegoer, you might know the John Cusack, The Raven. If you're a yeah, hardcore yeah. Poe fan, you know that there are two films virtually back-to-back in the uh, first hundred years of cinema that are very biographical, uh, even if they get some of the facts wrong. Um, one of them called, mm-hmm. also called The Raven. And, um, you know, there's not a whole lot out there. Um, as far as American International Pictures is concerned, there's your book, um, which, uh, uh, remind me of the title, Rock and Roll, um, uh, oh, it's uh, Rock and Roll Monsters, the American International story. Rock and Roll Monsters, because American International was 
producing for drive-ins, monster movies, and rock and roll movies. And that's uh, yeah. primarily what they did from uh, the early 50s to the late 70s. Here's Don Smith's book, The Post Cinema. There's not a whole lot to go to. Um, mm. And I, I love your book. Your book is formatted in a really, really great way in that it does go uh, chronologically through the decades uh, in an essay sort of format and is not a glorified listicle the way some McFarlane film books can be. Um, it, it, it's really yeah. quite wonderful in that way. Um, so where okay. did you... Okay, so you get this assignment from Tomahawk Press. You say yes. What did you decide to do? Where did you have to go to research or catch up on the films you hadn't seen? Well, kind of all over the place. I, uh, you know, I, I look up uh, some of the older films, uh, the public domain movies on, uh, you know, sources like YouTube and so on. But um, also I had uh, some other books to leave through. And as you said, there aren't a whole lot of books that really cover this. So I didn't have a lot of luck with other books. But mainly I had to, um, you know, hit up other fans to see if they had copies of the uh, certain items, and there were some that I couldn't see, such as The Telltale Heart, the 1934 version, because it's, a mm. B it's, it's on the BFI website, and Americans can't access that. So I had to have a British friend um, access that for me. Uh, but then it came out on, uh, I believe it was Sinister Cinema brought it out, and uh, I ended up getting a copy of it anyway. But uh, some of them were, were kind of hard to find. I mean, I, I did find, actually, thanks to people like you, I found The Raven, uh, the 1915 version, and uh, right. which I guess is, is somewhat incomplete, but uh, it's the most complete version that, that there is. And, um, yeah, some of the sign-up films were kind of a little tricky to track down, but I, I ended up, you know, finding people who had copies or knew where I could get copies, and... Uh, that was the main thing was to see the films because uh, in a book called Poe Pictures, you want to make sure you've seen all the pictures. And uh, <laughs> so that, yes. was, that was, you know, I, I can't say that was difficult research in a way because I love watching movies. So right. uh, yeah. that was not, not a problem. Uh, no arm twisting. But, uh, no arm twisting. No, none at all. But just finding them, tracking them down was a, was a little tricky at times. But I think I succeeded pretty well. There, there were there were a couple of, uh, of really obscure ones, like an Italian version of Hitting the Pendulum. I think it's from 1910. I wasn't able to find that, but uh, you know, I think overall I I did pretty well with it. I think so. I think so. The um, the 1915 Raven. I think. Um, I think there's there's a it's out of print now. I think there's a version that I did an audio commentary of where mostly what I could talk about uh, other than films of the period in context, you know, because 1915 of course is also the year the Griffiths does uh, mm -hmm. Birth of a Nation, but um, pretty much kind of enjoy it for what it was and fact check it for Poe uh, Edgar Allan Poe fans. Um, who take right. great umbrage at bending his stories into new material, which I've never had a problem with. I enjoy all leaps into the imagination for a new story, 
based on the material, so-called adaptations. You're also mm -hmm. a great you're a great fan of the universal horror pictures of the 30s and 40s. And um, as far as Poe films, if there's ever a, a period of time in Poe pictures where truly Poe's stories are completely thrown out the door uh, and a completely new story is added, I think it's, uh, would you agree that it's maybe the universal films? Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, it, they yeah they basically just wrote entirely new screenplays. I mean, at least Richard Madison's screenplays for the Corman films usually were based on the stories. But uh, in yeah, yeah. case, they really didn't, they really didn't base anything on on the stories. Um, but they're fun movies, and I think The Black Cat is probably my favorite of all the Universal horror films in a lot of ways. I was going to ask you, and I, I checked with you on that. The Black Cat is um, one of many teamings with uh, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And um, it is, like a lot of those films of that period, it's, I don't know, it doesn't even break 75, 79 minutes. They're, they're very, very mm -hmm. lean in running time, these films. But The Black Cat in particular is... Um, really quite a strange atmospheric um just very perverse kind of film um what is it that you yeah. like about it what is it that grabs you well about I, think that? I, I, I like that element of perversity uh i mean i you know it, it was one of the last of the pre-code horror films and i think it helped bring about the enforcement of the code because mm. It, it went into some really strange territory. I mean, uh, as you said, it was, uh, I mean, you have elements there of necrophilia, incest, uh, <laughs> you name it. You know, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on there. But yeah. uh, to me, it's just a, a masterfully made movie. You know, it's got the the constant music score, much of which is classical, which is great. And uh, uh, I just love that scene where... Um, Karloff uh, gives Lugosi the tour of of the house, and the music mm -hmm. continues to the whole thing. And mm -hmm. you know, the camera kind of prowls around like a voyeur. You know, it's just a a wonderful scene, and the whole movie just really it still packs a punch. I think you know, with the with the ending where Lugosi is playing Karloff alive is pretty gruesome stuff, even though you don't really see much. Mm -hmm. But uh, just. A terrific movie, and it's really a shame that Edgar Ulmer had an affair with one of the big wigs at Universal, uh, one of his wives, <laughs> and uh, messed up his entire career. You know, it's it's a shame that that happened because he he really hit it out of the park the first time out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In your journey in watching, uh, well, this is this includes films you rewatched for your book. Um, were there any surprises? Were there any of these Poe pictures that, because I'm going to assume, being the film historian, film fan, filmmaker that you are, that you know a lot of films. You've seen the Universal Horrors. You've seen the uh, the Corman pictures. Um, but are there any of the Poe pictures in the researching of the book that surprised you when you came upon it or rewatched it? Um, well, um, 
yeah, there were some that um, I hadn't seen in a long time that uh, I kind of developed a new uh, love for. I think um, the, um, well, it's a 1967 movie which has many titles, uh, The Snake Pit and the Pendulum, uh, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. Uh, under any title, it's a very interesting movie, a German film with uh, Christopher Lee and Lex Barker and Karen Dorr. And uh, I just find that movie really stylish and beautiful to look at. Um, it's It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a way, <laughs> a logical sense, but it has a really dreamlike atmosphere. And uh, I really uh, liked that movie a lot better when I saw it recently than I had before. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious, uh, as we move through the decades and there is then a kind of wasteland of uh, pre-Corman, pre-American international pictures where there's a film that pops up occasionally. Uh, and one of the oddest in the bunch is the, uh, let me see if I remember the title correctly, because it's been a, it's been a minute since I've seen it, The Loves of Edgar Allan Poe. And well, it's a yeah, studio. Yeah. It's a it's a studio picture, <clears throat> and right. yeah. um, it is um, odd to go in hindsight, or I guess if I were a contemporary, um, you know, Poe even in the forties, fifties, is known for you know his horror, which is not really what Poe spent every minute of his 40 years writing. They, they were successful yeah. to write the horror things. Um, the audience of the readers gobbled those up, but to leap into Linda Darnell territory, the loves of Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe, to this day still seems a little bit of a weird choice, but it's, a, it's, it's yeah. actually fairly accurate biography in some ways. In some ways, it is. I mean, Linda Darnell is way too old for that role, but mm-hmm. uh, but she does well enough in it. And um, I think if she had actually been, oh, say thirteen, I think the audience would have been uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's, I thought it was a very interesting movie, and I thought uh, Shepard Stredwick, who played Poe, was very good. Um, he's an he's an actor who never really made it big, but I always uh, thought he was a, a very good actor. Yeah, um, it's a film that fans, and sometimes it pops up. I think it may be available by accident on YouTube. It, it is out there, um, and I, I, I recommend that Poe film fans search that out and try to find it. There are moments in their colors that, that work really, really well, and you know something called The Loves of Edgar Allan Poe are going, is going to trace basically the women in his life. Um, kind of the way Richard Attenborough approaches Chaplin in uh, his wonderful film with mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr., where the, fo- the, the, the narrative thread is the women in Chaplin's life. It's pretty much this too, even though it'll touch on other yeah. things. I think I, I, one of the things I like about that, the loves of Edgar Allan Poe is the, scene, the, the scenes with his foster father. Uh, yeah. The tone is right. The tone is accurate in a lot of ways. Uh, and that mm-hmm. you don't see in any films in over 100 years, really. 
Um, because surprisingly, there isn't. There isn't. Uh, here we are in the 21st century. There's never really been a good biography uh, of Poe on film, and uh, if if anything, uh, Netflix, HBO, uh, a serialized uh, thing would be perfect. Um, I'm curious in mm-hmm. your research what you came across because I just am thinking of it now for the first time. There's been the ongoing joke for several decades about Sylvester Stallone wanting to make a whole <laughs> yeah. film. And as yeah, I I'd rather not see. <laughs> no. 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 no, I was going to say, yo, the Raven, never more. Yeah. <laughs> just. Um, <laughs> It took a while for me to grasp, and I was had my ear to the ground immediately. I heard the first announcements of this many years ago, and of course, people mm-hmm. came away with, "Well, he wants to play Paul. He, yo, Paul. Okay, great." But it uh, turns out that what he has been writing on and off, and um, oh, a year or two ago, there was another. Um, when, in social media, he became more and more prominent doing little videos and things, and he announced that he had finished a rewrite of the script. Well, all along I've known that it was a biography, and I think he's always intended another actor to play. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, I, and at one point in the whole desperate, long, uh, because he talks about Poe being a figure of fascination, soon after writing and making the film Rocky. And I, and I remember there was a studio that financed a string of films that included Rocky Balboa. And it was really, I feel kind of bad for Stallone because I think what happened was there was a carrot and stick kind of thing where, uh, and Stallone has never come out and said this, but basically we'll finance and do these other films based on previous movies you've made because we think they will make money. A sequel to Rocky, uh, go back to Rambo uh, and do this. And so in that period when he was doing those films, I saw occasionally in the trades notice that, oh, he's got an Edgar Allan Poe film in pre-production. And yet again, nothing has ever happened. Um, So I think it's been one of those kinds of passion projects that, and of course, pandemic comes when he does another mm. rewrite of the script. And um, I only bring it up because of all, you know, over a hundred years of Poe pictures, and there really hasn't been a uh, a decent, uh, any kind of real biography. Um, I want to jump around because your 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 working film also includes uh, screenwriting, and um, I, I uh, am curious. Um, if uh, and I actually have a point. There's a place I'm going that is that is tangentially sort of related to Edgar Allan Poe and the movies. Um, but you wrote a, a bunch of screenplays, and yeah, this was for a. This is uh, a lot of them were for a company that that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, EI Cinema, uh, right? And uh, EI Cinema um, had their peak, their heyday, really, when, uh, for the consumer, uh, Best Buy had an enormous DVD section, and uh, video, brick-and-mortar video stores were thriving, and uh, so they, they had a market for their product. Um, mm-hmm. 
free streaming and that kind of thing. Uh, how many how many scripts did you write for them, and how did that come about? Um, you know, I'm not sure how many. I think uh, probably six or seven anyway. Um, that came about because I had made a a feature film called Vampire, which was a remake of the Carl Dreyer Vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, I made it back in the late uh, 80s, and it got picked up originally by... Um, I forget who the company was for VHS, but when that deal lapsed, then EI Cinema asked if they could distribute it. So I said, sure. And uh, they also distributed my, well, I call it a shockumentary called Fangs, which is uh, hosted and narrated by Veronica Carlson, who uh, Mm -hmm. used to be a Hammer starlet and uh, I've known her for quite a few years. Uh, So they, they distributed both those movies and then they, um, you know, I got to know the guys pretty well. Mike Raza was a good guy, and he's he's still pretty busy. He actually, yeah, I morphed into pop cinema. I think they they're still a, a business, but they don't really make films. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, he asked me to write some screenplays for him, and I wrote several. I think two of them haven't been produced yet. Maybe they will someday. Um, <laughs> these are all kind of um, for EI anyway. They were more or less. Uh, uh, you know, sexploitation films. Uh, there was nice. one uh, called Doctor Jekyll and Sister, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mistress Hyde, I should say, uh, <laughs> which was because there's which right was, there's the Martin Beswick Sister Hyde. Yeah, no, I don't want to confuse it with that. Um, and yes, I use my own name on these things because I have no shame. Um, <laughs> and and um, I actually I actually appear in one of them. I'm in. Uh, Misty Monday, Mummy Raider. I play yes. Misty's father <laughs> uh, at a uh, you know a chintzy pith helmet uh, that I think was made out of styrofoam. <laughs> but uh, I mean, these movies were fun to do, and they were fun to watch being made. I'll say that. <laughs> but uh, absolutely, you know, and my and my wife understands. She you know she's she's okay with that. <laughs> business is business, and. Uh... My wife actually helped me write the screenplay for The Sexy Adventures of Van Helsing, it's called. Um, <laughs> um, so she has no problem with that stuff. It's, it's, when I think of Van Helsing, I think of Peter Cushing, and then I think of Edward Van yeah. Sloan, and I don't think sexy. And, you know, uh, forgive me, fans of Peter Cushing or Edward Van Sloan, but... Uh, not where I would go, but EI Cinema, yes, I get it. Um, yeah. Funny thing is, so I think no, that's, we all have a past, and that's fine. Well, um, this is one of the areas where, uh, unbeknownst to each other, our paths start to cross because about that time uh, that the Misty Monday movies and EI Cinema uh, they distributed a film I produced called Chainsaw Sally. And I believe that Sally, I think that Chainsaw Sally was the first title under their um, pop cinema banner. Um, I think they actually launched the banner with that release and it got into Hollywood video. It got into brick and mortar and did pretty well for the investors. But, um, I, you know, there's a small world. Small world in fandom, yeah. small world in independent film, 
Well, having written EI scripts, uh, you okay. <laughs> it's um, it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and she's yes, she's got fans. Naturally, they. That was the first time I was ever paid for my screenwriting. So, you know, I, I, I'm very grateful to those guys. No, it's, it's, it's a, it was a really, really good time. And, um, you know, I just, uh, it, and it was a weird transition time in the business overall because um, mm. I uh, had some good deals in place with my uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at that time. And the world was shifting <clears throat> where... There, the 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 gulf really between Hollywood, big production, and the rest of the world was just the gap was widening and widening and widening, and um, yeah. we sort of started as the uh, imagine an action adventure film, and you're in your pith helmet and you're trying to lasso the other side of the other cliff, and it just keeps getting further and further away, and we almost had a deal with Paramount Home Video with Jekyll and Hyde. And um, I, to this day, think that had, had that really hooked, I think what we were doing with film, what I was doing with film at that time, I think would have gotten a better foothold in some ways. But the chasm kept widening and, you know, brick and mortar started going away. It's a, it's a very mm -hmm. different world. And uh, to start making films or rather producing films at that time was an interesting, you know, you're doing it on shifting tectonic plates. Uh, now it's always been the case. The industry always right. keeps changing. Um, and one of the reasons I brought all of this up was, um, I believe, um, another wonderful connection. And this gets us back around to Paul pictures eventually. Um, another nice connection was the friendship with Ingrid Pitt that you had. And, did, did you, did you, mm -hmm. or did you not? Am I misinformed? Uh, did you have something you were hoping to do with Ingrid? Very much so. Yes. Um, I wanted to do another version of Carmilla, uh, mm. you know, that was close to the story. And, uh, actually I had some interest from uh, a Canadian filmmaker, uh, up in Montreal. And I went up there and, you know, we talked about it, but nothing unfortunately ever really came of it. But, if it had happened, um, Ingrid Pitt would have played Carmilla's mother, and her mm -hmm. real daughter, Stephanie, would have played Carmilla. Wow, um, yeah. But sadly, never came to be. One of, yeah. one of a couple of projects. There's another project called Gravesend, which is a long story, but that was the most heartbreaking to me, that that didn't, didn't happen. That was going to be a, a Hammer reunion film of sorts, and uh, oh. just... Just got that close, and then the investors pulled out, and boom, you know. Was this? So that's, uh, that's who else did you? Who else did you have uh, in in my? Who else did you have uh, hopes for for Gravesend? Because <clears throat> was this about the time that Ingrid uh, was trying to get her own thing, this Hammer Glamour thing, together? Um, this was actually earlier than that. This was in around oh, 1985. Yeah. Okay, and. Uh, I had letters of intent from people like Ralph Bates, Caroline Monroe, uh, mm -hmm. Michael Gothard, um, mm. and, uh, who else? But John Caglione for effects. Um, oh, wow. I mean, he, he was an Oscar-winning effects guy. Um, and all these people rallied around the script. They really wanted to do it. 
And we had uh, some Greek investors who were, who were based in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, they actually had, I think it was uh, a million and a half dollars in escrow or something for it. And we made a poster, and it was announced in Variety in the Cannes issue in 1985. Mm-hmm. And then there was an argument over among the producers over who would get what credit, and they just pulled out of the project. And it was a real heartbreak for me. Um, yeah. Because we were we were ready to pack our bags and 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 go and film it, but it just uh, just uh, collapsed. So after that, that's when I decided to do my remake of, of Vampire because I thought, hey, here's a film that can be really made simply with very little dialogue, uh, very mm-hmm. visual stuff. And we knew a guy who uh, this rich eccentric character who owned a reconstructed 19th century village. He owned the whole thing. He had oh gotten gosh. the buildings from various places and reconstructed the whole village. So that became the village of Pierre in the film. And uh, we, we shot the whole thing there. And it, uh, you know, it, it, it turned out, I think, pretty well for what it was. I, you know, we tried to make it strange, like the original film. Yeah. It's pretty strange. Um, but it's, you know, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of differences. Um, and it actually got a, a really good review in a book called The Vampire Film by Elaine Silver, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that book. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's over the years, it's become kind of a, I don't know if I would call it a cult film, but it's, it's a film that, you know, I, I get contacted about every now and then from, from people who've either seen it or want to see it. No, I, I've not seen it and I would love to see it. Um, yeah, I, well, we'll I've see. known of it. <laughs> Sorry. We'll see if we can make that happen. <laughs> Uh, maybe I'll trade you a chainsaw finale. I don't know. Somebody is getting the raw end of the stick here, but uh, we'll worry about that. And <laughs> about so, that. So, but uh, you know, Bruce, with all of the, um, it's a very small community over the last several decades. You, have we ever actually met? And forgive me for not remembering having met. I think pandemic and yeah. seclusion has erased parts of my memory, but. Um, <laughs> I don't think we've met, but I remember. I, I, the only place we might have met would have been at Fanex in Baltimore. Um, yeah. Maybe back in, back in the 90s, but I, I don't think so. Um, I, uh, I didn't meet your actor, Kevin Shinnick, until uh, about four years ago when he was doing Dracula in New York, and I went down to ah. see the show, which I thought was great, and uh, finally got to meet him. But no, I, I don't think you and I have ever met, um, which is too bad. No. You know, it's weird. I'm not, I must have been thinking about this because last night I dreamed that I drove down to Baltimore and it only took me an hour, which, you know, I must have been driving <laughs> like 200 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> or or but, it was a dream. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I ended up uh, meeting with you and chatting with you and we were going to do a stage show of some sort. And then I realized oh. I was just wearing my pajamas. <laughs> so it, it was one of those uh, dreams where you're not prepared so I guess I was hoping I was prepared for this interview <laughs> alright we're going to jump around a lot and, and believe it or not I do I, 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 had a, I, I had a thought in bringing up the lovely late Ingrid Pitt so I'll get back to that but um, first of all complete sidebar 
Okay, pajamas, a dream. I have had in my life, I just, this is, I, I, this is absolutely nothing to do with nothing. Um, I have, I don't think I have ever had a legitimate actor's nightmare. They tend to be the anxiety dreams. Mm-hmm. The common thing is that you don't know your lines or that everything has yep. been so changed that you know where you are, but you're still lost. I have yeah. had two. I have had two directors' nightmares, and one of them, oh. <laughs> one of them, is I'm in this enormous building, and there is scaffolding and lights, and it's it's like a, 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 as tall as a football field, as long as a football field, and dark scaffolding and lights and white and plastic all over cavernous and i'm climbing up and i'm climbing up to meet the director who is fellini who is federico fellini and i get all the way to the top of this journey of the scaffolding and and to uh, editorialize for a moment the um the scaffolding is very much the ending of eight and a half even though it's all outside and and uh so i i think that's maybe where the imagery comes comes from and I get to the top, I get to the platform, and there are people up there, and there's Fellini, and he is, I'm introduced to him, and he turns to me, and he says, is that what you're going to wear? <laughs> and, that's the, and that's the end of the dream. And um, yeah. it still bothers me to the, all these years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the yeah. FanX uh, convention for listeners was a wonderful convention classic horror mostly at its root run by founded and run by gary and uh his wife gary and sus vela and um conventions back in the day in the 70s were far and in between star trek was doing mm-hmm. stuff famous monsters there was the big one in 76 and and gary and sue sort of led the way where others over the years picked up whether it was Kevin in with Chiller Theater in New Jersey, whether it was uh, Martin Grahams with his um, uh, Mid-Atlantic Festival, and then others, and now, you know, uh, pre-pandemic and in the future, you know, these conventions are all over in every city and town. But they had fabulous guests that we all grew up with, um you could meet hammer stars you could meet oh my gosh they had uh, one year their guest was robert wise the director so right. these really quite quite wonderful things perhaps our paths crossed um and and whatever i uh uh so it's 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 just funny that maybe we first become aware of each other i mean i'm a a, a film book I eat film books. I've just, you know, I have a, an enormous library. And uh, so I've read you before the book, Paul Pictures, and before you contacted me about that, which we'll get to in a minute. And um, let me just touch on Ingrid Pitt for a moment. Um, and, I, and, 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 you know, there are the ones that got away, the ones that are the projects, the films, the heartbreakers. And, uh, for me, I don't know if you stumbled on this footnote in your research for Poe Pictures, but uh, 
The one film that I wished would have happened, and I tried to make it twice. I have a, a script, a, a really nice, I think, uh, way into doing a, a feature based on uh, Poe's The Telltale Heart. And uh, mm -hmm. did you come across any of this in your research online I, or I anything? Think, yeah, I think uh, Kevin Finnick may have mentioned that to me, or somebody did. Or yeah, maybe it was you, I don't know. Yeah. And it's mentioned in another book. Um, I can't remember the title or why. It's. I think it's mentioned in a book uh, after Ingrid died uh, about Ingrid Pitt. I think maybe that's where the mention of okay. it of of the project and yeah. that it didn't happen. But the first time I tried to make it was um, we got very very far. Uh, it was complete unknown cast. In a nutshell, it was set immediately uh, at the end of the Civil War, pre-Reconstruction, martial law in the Maryland, D.C. area, and um, a boarding house, a killer, travelers fleeing Virginia and trying to find new lives, and the boarding house is run uh, by a woman and uh, her husband, who is Poe's old man with the eyes, so that we can actually get Poe into the, the, the Poe story, into the film, at least in its third act, in a, in a 90, 100-minute mm -hmm. film. So the first time we tried to make it, it was a completely unknown cast, a lot of the actors. We went through a casting project. Uh, there are costume sketches. We started building costumes. We found all of the locations, and it fell through financially. So time goes on. And um, I then realized that this would be perfect for two friends that I had made over the years, Ingrid Pitt and Robert Quarry. And uh, mm. they were so game to do this. And <clears throat> this is probably why Kevin mentioned it to you, because uh, Kevin was one of the travelers from Virginia with his mm -hmm. sister. And she, the sister was going to be played by Debbie Rashad. So I had a really wonderful, I had a really wonderful cast. Again, I had many of the locations uh, within Maryland that needed very little set dressing, uh, finding things that were of the period, right down to doorknobs, much like your village uh, for oh, yeah. Vampire, you know, just things that existed. <clears throat> it's the hotbed, yep. the mid-Atlantic of Civil War reenactments. So extras. Soldier, I mean, the, 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 it's all there. And mm. Ingrid, Ingrid was so excited about this. I mean, the one thing I've learned about actors is that uh, they, they, they always want to work. They never, they may say they're retired, but... And um, sadly, three things happened within the span of about eight months to a year, year and a half in, in a snapshot, it's, it's very rapid that they happened, but it was a, it was a horrible time where Robert Quarry, uh, moved into, um, the, uh, the actor's home in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles. <clears throat> and like a lot of, like a lot of older people, the moment they did that, they began to slide and he passed away. Ingrid was incredible. Ingrid would, you know, there's a time difference, obviously. She's in England with her husband. And um, she would call me at all odd hours, 
with ideas about casting, about you know what to do about this in keeping the project alive. Um, yeah. Then I had my investors, or my main investor, have a stroke, <laughs> and I, I had you know I dealt with his daughter for a while, and we we moved on. I said, look, I can't keep bothering him. This is just. Uh, and he eventually recovered and lived several years longer, but he was out of the picture to finance the film. And um, wow. and then dear dear Ingrid passed away. Yeah. Um, and people have asked me, you know, uh, uh, you know, well, why don't you do it with such and such and this kind of thing? And it, I just have to say, and maybe you check with Graves, and maybe there is this this similar kind of thing. And this is the last I'll, I'll say about it. And it only tangentially has to do with Poe movies, because when I picked The Telltale Heart, it's a favorite Poe story. But at that time, there were really no feature films. You know, there's the, what is it, the 1953 yeah. Telltale Heart feature. Uh, there were short right. films, uh, the MGM short. Uh, since then, you know, in recent years, a ton of student films and independent or amateur films on online. Yeah. But nobody had really done anything as a feature. Corman missed it and avoided it completely. It doesn't exist. So I thought, okay, this is one to do. And um, I, I have to tell you, Bruce, I saw it so clearly. By the time mm -hmm. I was working on the version with Robert Quarry and Ingrid Pitt and Kevin and Debbie and... Um, other other actors, other wonderful actors. Um, I saw this film so clearly, clearer than anything I'd ever done. And so it, it yeah. no, I probably won't do anything with it. And I'm now too old to play the killer, uh, unless I just, I don't even know what that means. But in anticipation of talking to you about Poe movies, I couldn't help but think of that. It, it was such a major project for me um, that just, serendipitously has to be a, a story based on an Edgar Allan Poe story that um, uh, it's one of the, you know, everyone has many projects that don't get made. Yeah. For every one that gets made, there's two dozen that don't see the light of day. And this one got close twice. Yeah. And so, so I, I, uh, I miss Ingrid, you know, we share in common a number of uh, friends uh, in the business that uh, are still, I mean, I'm still working with Caroline Monroe on things. We did, uh, you know, the mm -hmm. audio Sinbad together and some other things. We're, this is a secret, but we're working on an audio biography with Caroline uh, this year. Yeah. Uh, so that'll Great. be kind of fun and some other stuff. Um, so let's get back onto your book for a second and let me ask you a wild card question. You've now watched all of these films. You've been writing this book. You've been shaping it. Like I said, it is, for lack of a better word, it's a wonderful essay, essay style that moves through decade to decade instead of just taking each film individually. And you've mixed it up with some little interviews with uh, some contemporary actors and filmmakers and that sort of thing. What, at the end of the day, and it can be any of them. I'm just curious your own taste. You've now watched all of these films. What is your favorite Poe picture? Of all time? 
Hmm. Of all of, of of all time. Well, I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I I sort of I sort of compartmentalize them, but um, and I get that. You know, I can't. Yeah, I, I can't. Think, I can't think of any really that I like better than Mask of the Red Death. Um, mm. About you know, I think my my sentimental favorite of the of the Corman series is maybe the Haunted Palace, which maybe it's because I'm a Lovecraft fan, but it was also the first one I ever saw, so that probably has something to do with that. Probably but, a lot to do with it, sure. Yeah, but I can't really think of anything I like better than Mask. Uh, you know, it's just uh, such to me a practically perfect Poe movie. I mean, it kind of condenses everything that he ever wrote in the sense in, into one film. And uh, just so perfectly realized. The Mask of the Red Death. Personalized by the motion picture screen's Prince of Horror, Vincent Price. So then shouldn't you be on your knees to give thanks? No, I beg of you. Mercy, mercy. Lavishly, he plants his corrupting seeds of sin. Spreading living terror that not even the unsullied can escape. Each man creates his own heaven, his own hell. Let me see your face. I must say, I was very impressed with extraordinary story or extraordinary st- stories or tales. I forget what it is. Extraordinary tales, I believe it is. Uh, oh, the, the recent, anthology. Uh, this is the anthology yeah. um, animation film, right? That, that Guillermo del Toro did, which uh, yeah, really, really impressed me. And it, uh, you know, it's just a lot of short films from different directors. And you know, one of the coolest things I think in it is that they have the. Uh, the Telltale Heart, narrated by Bela Lugosi, which is, you know, just so unexpected and uh, so great. Yeah, and, it's a uh, wonderful Chris, little. Had, had you been a, had you been aware of the recording before seeing uh, Extraordinary Tales? If, if, if I was, I never. Heard it. I, no, yeah. I never heard it before, um, and I, it was just super, a real treat, you know. Um, yeah. Plus, you know, Christopher Lee is involved with it, and uh, right, you know, it's it's a real. You get the sense of of love for that project from all the filmmakers. Yeah, um, I like that film very much. Let me go ahead. Go ahead, please. No, I was going to say, uh, you know, it's much easier to come up with a list of poe adaptations I don't like. Uh, well, let's I touch on that. Let's get on that, but. Uh, before I forget, the, what I understand about the Lugosi recording that is the basis of the one short in that collection is that, and I'd have to check with uh, somebody like uh, Gary Rhodes on this, because as I as I heard the story, um, someone knew that I was doing Poe things, and they sent me this recording on a CD. And as I understood the history of it, he was in his later life touring Dracula, and he was mm-hmm. doing um, he was doing PR wherever he could. And I believe now this is where I could be wrong. 
that he's in Kansas City. Kansas City, Kansas is almost like a WC Fields routine. Uh, Kansas City, Missouri, or Kansas City, Kansas. And at a radio station, and that's where it's recorded. And uh, at some point, if you listen to a really clean recording, or the cleanest possible, as it's been duped and duped and duped, you can actually hear a truck outside the building during the recording. But um, uh, so, so I'm curious now, you got me. What are your least favorite? What's at the bottom of the list of the Poe pictures you've seen? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, you know, that's a long list. Um, <laughs> okay. Just, the... just just Franco's version of the Fall of the House of Usher is, is pretty far up there uh, or down there. And, yeah. Uh, have you ever seen that? I have. I've, you know, there are, in your book, there are few Poe films I've not seen. Um, yeah. by either accident or, uh, you know, because of research or something in all these decades. But yes, I have seen that. And, um, yeah, I don't even know how to begin to describe it to somebody because it, yeah, I had, it, I had a hard time writing it. it <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those films that even in the first five or 10 minutes, you have to remember, wait, what is the name of this film? Why is it called this? It's such yeah. a, it, yeah, it's very strange. Uh, strange isn't the word. It's just, uh, it's hardly a movie. I don't know what, what to call it. You know, it's, yeah. It's just uh, a thing unto itself. But um, I'll tell you what was the biggest disappointment for me, and I had to track this down from Europe, was uh, the series uh, Tales of Mystery and Imagination with Christopher Lee. As host, yes, and, uh, the, the and South African series, yeah. mm -hmm. yes, yes, just unbelievably awful. You know, considering mm -hmm. that Lee, you know, is the host, and uh, you know, the hostess with the mostess. I mean, it, it's right. just it's just unbelievably bad. I mean, the the production values are poor, the acting is poor, the writing is pretty poor. I, there are a couple of exceptions. There was a a pretty good version of Cask of the Monteado there with Freddie Jones, except that it was shot so in, in such darkness that you can hardly see anything. Um, mm. But have you ever seen that, that series? I've seen some episodes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I agree with you completely. The The marquee value, the name Christopher Lee out is, is too weighted. It sinks. Because yeah. what they actually were able to produce just isn't very good. It's just, it's a waste of time, really. And it's unfortunate because, again, for the Poe purist, they tend to like really straightforward adaptations of things. They don't like suggested by or adapted from or inspired by. They, and that's, you know, fine. But you better deliver because the material yeah. is there, you know, uh, to adapt a short mm -hmm. story into something that's running, if by the clock, because of broadcast time, 30 minutes. But, um, you know, this is I've never had a problem with adaptation. I've never had a, I, as a viewer, as a, as a civilian, you know, the Poe story is there. Take me someplace new. That's fine. 
It's one of the reasons why I agree with you in the favorites list about uh, Mask of the Corman, Mask of the Red Death, is mm-hmm. that it really does expand. Mask of the Red Death is an, is the the Poe story, is the engine that's in there, is one of the spines. It is also interwoven with the short story Hop Frog, and everything mm-hmm. that is developed with Prince Prospero, that is its own invention is actually quite wonderful and weaves all three of these elements together. Um, yeah. And those, 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 thems of us that, that know our uh, uh, Bergman and uh, other films see the influence or the imagery in a couple of moments from some European films, including The Seventh Seal. But, um, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, it's, it's one of the top adaptations there. But... Um, now I, I don't remember, you know, I, I, I brought up how we how we met, which I'm then assuming is probably interacting on check me if I'm wrong, the classic horror film board. Uh that community online. Is that where we start to uh, Yeah. Maybe. Is that that's a possibility. Uh, you get to be my age and you forget things. I, I don't know. But uh <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that's certainly possible. Because yeah. it seems to me well, that I, I, yeah, that um, at the early part of this century, I get very involved there meeting people in, there are a lot of, this is pre my, this is kind of pre MySpace, let alone Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. And I think social media mm-hmm. kind of impacts. So this was a chat room. This was a online place where people who, as the name of the, the place, uh, Classic Horror Film Board, uh, really starts with classic horror, uh, really starts with fans of the universal horror pictures and then hammer and then outward and outward circles, science fiction and, and, and everything is game at a certain point. And there are a lot of writers. You know, I remember meeting a lot of people whose books I read and, uh, you know, everybody interacting and chatting. And it's about the time and I got heavily involved, I think, when when my version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came out. Um, yeah. As I said in the introduction to this chat for the podcast, the word that I cannot stop using is uh, when I read Poe Pictures was that I was gobsmacked by what you had to say about the death of Poe and the fact that you ran the article uh, in the book, uh, the interview, the interview in the book. Um, I don't remember, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe at the time I assumed the interview because you've written for some wonderful magazines. You've contributed a lot to uh, 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 Dick Clemenson's Little Shop of Horrors, which is a wonderful what are they into 35 issues it's just a wonderful yeah uh, well it's coming out every <clears throat> yeah so it's a, it's a primarily mostly about hammer films and it will go off very into neighborhoods very close to hammer films whether it's amicus or some other things but um, primarily the heart and love is for uh, hammer films and there's so much wonderful writing in all of those issues, uh, really in-depth film writing. 
uh, and you've contributed a lot for that. And so maybe I assume that the interview that we did about the death of Poe was for a magazine. I don't know. But gobsmacked I was and am <laughs> and grateful and and uh, with all humility, with all humility, um, what you said about the death of Poe in, in your book, Poe Pictures, um, I can't thank you enough. Uh, and I, I, I'm beside myself just with, wow, um, somebody saw it, one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough, uh, tough game to play independent film. And, uh, uh, and, and, and that, you, that you, thought, uh, you thought highly enough to just give it that space in the book. Thank you. Well, let me tell you, it was it was my pleasure because uh, I really was impressed with that movie. Um, and if you haven't seen it, folks, it's called The Death of Poe. <laughs> Story, written and directed by Mark Redville. Um, it really is a, a well done. Wait a minute. Movie. It's one of the best. I I need to make a note of that. Let me write that down. The Death of Poe was Mark Redfield. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> uh, it uh, it really is one of the best uh, movies about Poe that I've seen, um, and it it really gave me some new insight into how he might have died. That whole thing uh, about cooping, which you brought up in the film uh, and in our interview, I, I just found that fascinating. I hadn't been that familiar with that theory before, mm. but you know, just the acting. I mean, the uh, the the photography, the whole. The whole movie is really well done, and I, I congratulate you on such an excellent piece of work. Well, thanks, uh, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a movie fan. I love, like you, I love all movies. I love fantasy films, and I, that's my blanket for everything. You know what I mean? Because when you talk to people who don't yeah. get it, they think of horror mm -hmm. as being, you know, slasher and gore. Uh, you know, Sarah of a generation, and um, you know, I don't really enjoy those films. I'm more of a gothic horror and Ray Harryhausen fantasy. Mm -hmm. You know, give give me Swashbuckle mm -hmm. and Bride of Frankenstein yeah. seems to be my favorite Universal. Uh, my favorite mm -hmm. Cole, uh, my favorite Roger Corman film of all time, I think, remains the The Intruder with William Shatner. The um, the, uh, the film about the racist agitator who goes into a small town. It's just, uh, Corman is such a wonderful filmmaker. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about uh, last night in, in uh, thinking about uh, our chat today was um, <clears throat> take a film that, take one of the Poe films, for instance, a sidebar. I'm sorry, this just popped into my head. Um, the, take, take one that is kind of middling. Uh, for me, a middling Corman Poe film is The Pit and the Pendulum. It, the first act is a little slower than I want, and I think Matheson is stretching this whole what's wrong with Vincent Price's character too long as the characters mm -hmm. collect. And by the time we get to the third act, and by the time he's gone nuts and is in that set, the the chamber where the pit and the pendulum is and those white washed chalk-like pictures of the inquisitors and the mountains and the whole thing i mean 
visually it starts to to pay off in such a way but uh, so even the worst ones that's the kind of films i like and um all of this babble from out of my mouth right now is to say that uh i'm glad that the death of poe ends up in your book poe pictures as um i'm glad it it, it succeeds then on those levels for the poe scholar fan who dislikes mucking around with poe you know they don't like adaptations they mm -hmm. don't like they get they get very angry with things and films yeah. like uh the john cusack the raven where um yeah. poetically the image of him dying on a bench in the snow is beautiful and poetic and thematically right because poe dies alone you know but don't we all right. but literally hardcore edgar Allan poe aficionados hate this kind of thing and so when the john cusack uh the raven comes out they can't enjoy it for the fantasy that it is let's just what if poe played detective and a serial killer you know, was using the most gruesome things of his story to knock some people off. Let's just go there and have some fun. Dear God. Get the inspector. This crime is familiar to me. Edgar Allan Poe. To what may I attribute the honor of your call? The night before last, a young girl and her mother were found murdered. The daughter's body was lodged in a chimney mother's head severed with a straight razor you're referring to one of my stories a work of fiction i'm afraid i am not do you actually think that i murdered these people what cannot be disputed is that your imagination is the inspiration of a horrendous crime i love you edgar be careful i believe the killer is taunting us I challenge the brilliant detective mind of Edgar Allan Poe, a game of wits. If I will kill again, and on that new corpse, I will leave clues. As unfortunate as this is, you may be uniquely qualified to cast light on our killer. The Pit and the Pendulum. Are there other stories in the collection? Specifically about murder. I'm afraid so. This killer is methodical. He wants us to know he's gonna strike again. Stop! I dare you to try to save your beloved's life. Where is she? He will keep her alive to keep you involved. He's part of his game. And only. I would gladly give my life for her. I know you would. I'll send you to hell! No matter how this ends, I will kill him. See, I love that kind of thing, and I enjoyed the film for that. But um, you know, my, for... my, one of my big things with that film uh, was the anachronisms, because um, mm. there was a scene in that where uh, uh, there was a newspaper that Poe was looking at, and it said something about. A serial killer, and of the, course, the word, the phrase, the term serial, serial killer. killer. Yeah, it was, 
that was not in use. I found out until the 1970s. So <laughs> that right. kind of bugs me. And that that <laughs> comes out of I did some audio books on the Zodiac Killer for a, another author, and um, so I know yeah. a lot about <laughs> the coining yeah. of the term zero killer in the seventies. Um, yeah. So, so again, you know, thank you. I mean, uh, and I guess no. just as a human on the planet who uh, regret isn't the right word, but the, the, you know, I just really wish I could have done that telltale heart with Ingrid and Bob and, um, you know, the death of Paul grew out of, um, not being able to adapt a Poe story and, um, my own research into finding out who Poe was and said, you know what? I didn't know this. I didn't know that. This is a fascinating guy. And then, you know, with no money that we had, let's just do a very uh, expressionistic kind of thing about the creative, the struggle of the creative process. Because all artists, I mean, that was, there were two basic things that went into it. Um, the money it takes to make your art, even if you're a writer. Um, and mm-hmm. the struggle for that. <clears throat> and the t- second thing is, is that, okay, We'll never know how Poe died. These are the possibilities. I lean toward this one. Let's present them and kind of make up your own mind. And, um, you know, yeah. the little engine could. Thank you again. Um, I well, would. Pleasure. Um, what are you working on now? What are you, what are you writing? Can you talk about your next book? Do you know oh, yeah. things? Yeah, I think so. Because I just. I just finished writing it, actually. Um, it's it's another Hammer book. It's called The Hammer Thriller. And mm. uh, it's uh, it's about all the, uh, not just the, the so-called mini Hitchcocks of the 60s, but their early films, which were film noir, and, uh, yeah. you know, some of, their, some of their more recent films, like uh, The Lodge and The Resident. Um, just uh, everything that's kind of like non-supernatural psychological horror that Hammer did. Um, so um, that just got finished. It's going to be out from Hemlock Books in the UK uh, probably this summer. Oh, and, uh, and, you know, I'm always uh, banging out articles. I just wrote a piece for the new little shop of horrors about the uh, horror of Dracula. and uh, Which is a favorite. I'm looking forward to that issue. Yeah. The new Hammer book I'm looking forward to so much. It's a... Uh, even Hammer fans don't know the extent of the so-called thrillers. They'll know the top ones, like you say, the, the mini Hitchcocks. Um, they'll know films that are British thrillers in that area, the Betty Davis, the Nanny, um, mm-hmm. and some things. But the, uh, the Noors, the, uh, I'm looking forward to your book. Let's, let's kind of, continually unexamined aspect of Hammer uh, Hammer Films uh, productions. That's great. Well, it's it's hard to find uh, topics on Hammer that haven't been done to death, but uh, this one hasn't. And uh, there were some Hammer Films I had never seen that I had to track down. Again, uh, a lot of research was involved. I mean, Mm -hmm. a movie from 1947 called Death in High Heels, which (laughs) I never even heard of. And it it almost (laughs) sounds like it had been like an Italian giallo film, you know, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, all this stuff was fascinating to me to, uh, to see hammer in its infancy doing these kinds of movies. And, uh, you know, I hope, uh, 
I hope uh, it will turn on a lot of people to some of these films. I I really hope so too. And like I said, it's a it's a wonderful avenue uh, for Hammer fans uh, to explore. Um, so uh, maybe we can talk about that. I mean, obviously, there's so much to talk about with the films that you write about and the books that you've done. I mean, we could just chat for an hour, and I'll try to shut up more and learn about Hammer films and that kind of thing. But I think we should. I think we should do this again soon, if you'd like. Absolutely. Love it. Um, so that's what's coming up next. Um, we're, you know, I'm going to be um, putting out a couple of films um, that we made uh, again on Blu-ray. The uh, Death of Poe is currently um, out of print from its last distributor. Um, but mm-hmm. as we approach the anniversary in October, and then his birthday is in January, sometime, I think, later this year, we'll have, uh, we'll have a new edition out uh, of that and uh, get it out there streaming for an audience because I'd like people to see it. Um, and if they read your book and can't find it, then I'm in trouble. It becomes one of the lost <laughs> co-films. <laughs> now more people should see that film it is a really excellent movie can't say enough about it um bruce thank you um i i hope that people uh go online uh, to either amazon or go directly depending on where you're living and listen to this go to tomahawkpress.com uh and order poe pictures um and I say this with all, this makes me nervous. I wish there was another person here too. Uh, the book really is wonderful. Even if, even if you don't read the section that the death of Poe is featured in. This is <laughs> the book really, really is. Um, I, I enjoyed it uh, immensely and it's a valuable addition to um, the whole genre isn't the right word, but the whole genre of Paul pictures. So thanks, Bruce. Thank you. I want to thank Bruce very, very much for joining us on the podcast. And I want to thank you for listening, as always. I hope that you enjoyed our chat about all things Poe in the movies and uh, that you'll seek out Poe Pictures, Bruce's newest book. Um, If you are interested in the death of Poe, it is currently, as of this recording, out of print, but there are a limited number of copies that are available, and you can purchase a copy, a three-disc special edition of the death of Poe at either redfieldartsaudio.com or markredfieldstudios.com. And I hope you enjoy that if you've not seen it. Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast. We're going to leave you uh, at the end now of this program with Bela Lugosi reading The Telltale Heart.
true. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I'm mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I have many things in hell. How then am I mad? Listen and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object? There was none. For I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. And for his money, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, that was it. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. And whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man. And thus, rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution and foresight I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night about midnight I turned the latch on his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, so that no light shone out. Then I thrust in my head. And when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so... It was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me. It was his evil eye. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watcher's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. When I was about to open the lantern, my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening. And the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle. In the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in bed, listening. Presently I heard a slight groan 
And I knew it was a groan of mortal terror. He had been trying to fancy them causeless. He had been saying to himself, there's nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. But all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with its black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. When I had waited a long time without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little crevice in the lantern. You cannot imagine how stealthily, until at length, a simple dim ray like a thread of the spider shot out from the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. And it was open. Why open? I grew furious as I gazed upon it. All a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face, for I had directed the ray precisely upon the damned spot. Then there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew the sound well. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, only once, for in an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. <laughs> and I smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. <laughs> but for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not affect me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think no longer when I described the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily but in silence. 
First of all, I, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards. So cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye could detect anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, uh, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. The thump had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, and still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the yowl, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night, and they had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what did I to feel? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in, in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasure, secure, undisturbed. And in the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and bade them rest. I, myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But uh, ere long, I felt myself getting pale, and I wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a, a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and chattered. The ring became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling. Continued, and at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased. It was a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all. It grew louder, louder, louder. It 
the men chattered pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard nothing? Oh, my God. No, no. They heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making mockery of my horror. But anything was better than this agony. Anything. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, louder. 